0: There was a plan to see it as an economic center of, of the world, and, and so things were designed in the Empire State Building, comes up in the 1930s, the Woolworth Building and other buildings there, the Chrysler Building, and, and things changed. And imagine that you were driving down from Maine to New York City in those days, and you stop and you get a taxi to go into the city. And, um, and, and and you're stuck in traffic jams. Uh, you're trying to uh, reach the airport in New York City. And everywhere you go, there's cars, things, there's detours, or you're being rerouted because this development is coming. This change is coming. And there's, there's a design to, to change the whole road system to enable traffic to flow smoothly uh, between the airport and the city and other towns, north and south. And arrangements had to be made because building was in process here. Picture the frustration at that time and the limitations, the things you'd have to put up with in order to get to the real thing. And you say, well, that doesn't sound any different than New York City today. Well, uh, yeah, that's true, but illustration breaks down there. But. Or, or think of this, a sculptor who's carving a statue... They don't have time to, to make arrangements for other people, to do different things to that same block or wood or, or stone. Uh, 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 there's, there, 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 there's things that need to get done, and, it's, and the sculptor's focusing on building that thing, and there's, there's inconveniences there as he, as he chips away this and works on this to, to make that completed work. And if you only were living there in New York City, or you only stopped by to see a sculptor sculpt a statue for just a little bit, and you never saw the final point, even as a model or map, or you just lived a little bit in that temporary stage, you could understand perhaps a little bit of maybe how Israel and Jews that had come to Christ wrestled with the things that they had always known. The temporary arrangements. The rerouting. The, the stages. And now all of a sudden there was the final plan. And that was hard for their hearts to settle on. But they needed to be assured that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment and that he is the one and only way. If we had to ask ourselves from the Bible what our greatest need is. Our greatest need is pure, provided access to God for life. The story of the Bible is a story of access being denied. Access that once was available, access being denied, and then access that has been restored through a certain way. In the angelic realm, a third of the angels, headed up by Lucifer, rebelled against God, and God limited their access severely. He removed them from heaven. In the garden... Man and woman and enjoyed relationship and fellowship and access with God, walking with God in the garden. And when they sinned, God removed that access. It was not the same. Israel and their story in the Old Testament would walk with God and then they would sin and that access was diminished until those obstacles were taken care of again. You and I, our life, the Christian life, is a story about access to God. And this passage in Hebrews chapter 9 this morning is the truth of what it took to have access to God. We saw last week in chapter 8 that the Old Covenant, it's kind of like like a a limited version to point to the real thing. Uh, God gave a better promise, but the fact that He calls it a better promise means that the previous one, the Old Testament system, was not the real thing. It was only designed to point to the real thing, which comes in the Lord Jesus Christ as the promised one. And so now that Jesus Christ has inaugurated with his blood a new and living way and has delivered spiritual promises to all those who put their trust in Jesus through the new covenant, we can see that it's a better promise because it has a person behind the promise. There's the the new covenant that believers walk in is the real deal. And so that's the theme that he picks up here in Hebrews chapter nine, because at the end of chapter eight thirteen he says, and that he saith a new covenant, he has made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant is obsolete. Moses' covenant was obsolete. And so in chapter nine, verse one, he brings into picture. Of what Jesus had to do to give us the new covenant. Chapter 9 verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary. What he's saying is, under Moses' covenant, there were regulations that Israel had to follow. There were things that they had to do. And this tells us, and it's always been true, that the way to worship God is prescribed by God. We don't go to God on our own terms. We don't try to reroute his path. The way to God was always a way that he prescribed and mandated, even in the Old Testament. And God gave regulations of how the Israelites were to worship God. There was uh, uh, a... um, There was an earthly sanctuary. That's what it means at the end of verse 1 there. A worldly sanctuary. An earthly sanctuary. A physical sanctuary. A tabernacle. During that time. And he describes what that tabernacle looked like. And he starts to list some of the um, uh, portions and, and furniture that were in the tabernacle. That would remind the readers of what it took to worship God in the Old Testament. just share a, a few things with you here. Um, This morning and our, our first point is that is that Christ is better than the shadowed place. So let me just share a few images of you, with you just to refresh your mind of what some of these things in this place, the old place, the tabernacle, would look like. And these images are taken from the, from the ESV Study Bible, which is a tremendous resource uh, here. But here's, here's some of the things that he describes. He says, For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick. There's a candlestick there. Uh, a lampstand. You see, inside the tabernacle were no windows. And this was the, where the light would come from. This, this, uh, this candlestick with, with seven, seven candles in it. Um, don't worry about reading the writing. You probably won't be able to see it. Then there was a table with showbread. And if you counted those loaves, you would find there's 12 of them. Each one of them representing a tribe of Israel there. There's a table of showbread. There was the Ark of the Covenant. It describes that in, in, in verse 3. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded, and the two tablets, the tables of the covenant, the two tables of stone in the covenant, and above it, over it, the cherubims of glory shattering the mercy seat, and he lists, he describes these things. Inside the tabernacle was a bronze altar there. There was an altar of incense that was, that was to send a, uh, uh, the, the scent of, uh, of uh, uh, represented the scent of their prayers to the Lord, burning incense there. There was a basin to wash and to wash the animals' sacrifices in uh, as a a symbol of purification. All these things that pointed to the ultimate spiritual reality. All these physical things you could touch with your hands, smell, that you could see. And then there was the robes of the high priest. All kinds of symbolic uh, uh, colors and and the way they're laid out. There were 12 stones on this chest that represented Israel. uh, And being close to God's heart. Just a variety of, of things. And there would be a cutaway of the tabernacle. There's two compartments to that tabernacle. No one could go into that tabernacle except the priest. And on that back compartment where the Ark of the Covenant is... He could only go in there one time a year. But around that tabernacle was also walls. Around that tabernacle, a fence. And only certain people were allowed inside that fence. Everything is about access to God and limited access to God. Is what he's showing and saying here. Now, Solomon builds a temple... And Solomon wants a permanent place for God, and it's in Jerusalem. And so he takes the idea of the tabernacle, and he turns it into a temple. And there you can see a cutaway of the temple, and, back, and that back wall there would have been uh, the Holy of Holies, through which the high priest would have gone through. You can see the, the furniture is a little larger in the temple than it was in the tabernacle. And then Zerubbabel built a temple. After this, that temple got destroyed by the Babylonians. And that temple paled in comparison. Herod builds a temple. It's an extraordinary temple. This would have been the, the specific part of the temple where the worship took place. But the whole courtyard was immense and amazing. In fact, the disciples looking at it in the gospel say... This is going to be here forever, isn't this great? And Jesus says, in a few years, there's not going to be one stone on top of another. It was an amazing complex. But the whole point of all these things was to show their restricted access to God. So these verses in Hebrews 9 1 through 5 tell us something powerful here. That Christ is better than the shadowed place, the place was just a shadow. It was just a shadow. And he's better for a couple reasons. And I'd like you to skip down to verse 11 and see why. But Christ, being common high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle... Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. First of all, I want you to see here this morning that Christ brings us to a preeminent tabernacle. Now when it says that Christ brings us to a new tabernacle, he's not talking about he's going to take us to the tent. He's talking about the truth that the tabernacle was only a representation of. Of what the true reality of God's presence in heaven was like. The tabernacle was a representation of that. The earthly tabernacle was a parable, so to speak. It was a picture. It was a shadow of the real thing. And Christ brings us to the preeminent tabernacle. The actual presence of God in heaven. The very access of the God of heaven. Where he dwells in light. Christ is better than the shadowed place because he brings us to a preeminent tabernacle, the very dwelling place of God. Access with God. But secondly, he brings us to a perfect tabernacle. It's a perfect tabernacle. This tabernacle that you read about in Exodus and Leviticus, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, it was limited. It wore out and was tarnished. In fact, after the Babylonians destroyed Solomon's temple, uh, much of the furniture was lost, and there's no records as to much of the furniture, including the Ark of the Covenant, what happened to it uh, after the, uh, the Babylonians destroyed the temple, Solomon's temple. It was limited, wore out, was tarnished. And this tabernacle, or the temple that was built later, was a temporary substitute for the reality which God had in mind all along, the ultimate sanctuary, or tabernacle, which was the very presence of God Himself in the heavenly realms. Do you remember when you were a kid and you had the substitute teacher come? Right? It just wasn't the same, wasn't it, Leon? Leon's a school teacher. He's leaving here for Indiana uh, today. Uh, but uh, when, I, when I taught, and, um, uh, when I, I, was, I was sick one time in, in, in my eight years there. And, um, and I had a, a teacher uh, have to substitute for me. Um, uh, but then I also coached basketball so sometimes there were basketball trips so a couple days of the year I'd have the substitute and, um, and my kids were gracious enough to say when I came back oh we're glad you're back that substitute was something else now sometimes you will hope for the substitute right Um, But but the substitute there is just standing in place for some, just temporary, right? It's not the real teacher. It doesn't have all the grasp of everything. And and there's some good substitutes out there. But for the most part, uh, there's a reason we kind of chuckle at substitute teachers, right? Well, the actual presence of God in heaven is complete. It's the real thing. It's not the substitute. It's eternal. It's without corruption. It is the very access of God in all of its blazing perfection and glory and purity. So this first covenant had ordinances of divine service. It had an earthly sanctuary. It had all these things. But the point of it was that Christ is better than that. And it was just a substitute for the real thing. And it couldn't even do that very well. Look in chapter 9, verses 6 through 10. Now he talks about the person, the people who served there. Christ is better not only than the shadowed place, he is better than the shadowed priest, verses 6 through 10. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. There There were two compartments to that tabernacle. And the priest could go into that first compartment frequently doing the things that needed to be done in there in the ritual. But in the second compartment, the Holy of Holies is what it's called, went the high priest alone once every year. And how did he get in there? He couldn't go without blood, not without blood, a blood sacrifice, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. See in verse eight how the writer gives the Holy Spirit's commentary, his interpretation of all of this stuff in the Old Testament. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was. Excuse me. Was not yet made manifest. <clears throat> it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't opened up. As long as this old system was here, the way into the new was not opened up. And this passage here shows us that this priest who offered was just a shadow of Christ. Christ is better than the shadowed priest. Why? Well, first of all, he brings us to unlimited access. Unlimited access. You see, the priest could only go one time a year into where the presence of God was reflected, the Holy of Holies. One time a year. One time a year. One day of 365 did he represent the people in that way in the presence of God? And it was one man who did that out of the whole nation of millions of Israelites. The rest of the nation never got to experience access to God like the priest did as their representative. But look in verse 9 which was a figure for the time when present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as retaining the conscience. These sacrifices could even cleanse the one who was offering them. Which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal or earthly ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being common high priest of good things to come, then in verse 12 by his own blood you see Christ is better than the shadowed priest because he brings us to unlimited access and secondly he brings us to untainted access untainted access what do you you mean by that well jump back there earlier in those verses that high priest had to offer blood sacrifice in verse 7 says what he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. He was a sinner as well, and we saw that laid out very clearly in chapter 7. And he's repeating that for us. But here's the thing. Even though those rituals were offered and one time a year in the Day of Atonement, rituals could not provide perfect hearts. They're only symbols of the real thing. In fact, when you look in Psalm 51 at David's psalm of repentance for his sin, he puts sacrifices in this system in perspective. When he says in Psalm 51, verse 16 through 19, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. That's what the system could never deliver. It encouraged it, it could never deliver. The gospel in Christ delivers a broken and a contrite spirit. Do good in thy good pleasure in Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness with burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon the altar. Their hearts had to be right. For the ritual to make any sense. And people could really fill feel, feel obligations. But their heart would be could be far from God. And so that's why they needed a new covenant. A new and living way. So Christ is better than these shadowed priests. as he brings unlimited access. And untainted access. Pure, holy access. And look... The rest of the verses here in Hebrews nine and verse twelve. How does he come unto the greater and more perfect tabernacle? Neither by the blood of bulls and goats, or calves and goats and calves, but by his own blood. His own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of, an, ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, the outward. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offer himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, here's the third reality here. Christ is better than the shadowed provision. Than the shadowed provision, a provision of blood of bulls and goats, lamb on a day of atonement or Passover, I should say. And it had to be repeated every every year. Some sacrifices repeated daily. But Christ. Because of his once and for all sacrifice, he is the priest who does not take the blood of an animal, but takes his own blood, presents that to his father as sufficient. On the basis of his own unblemished blood sacrifice of himself, he completes the one-time act to cover our sin, so God's justice is satisfied. And that's what this passage is telling us. It's telling us about God's justice. God is just. He cannot overlook our sin. He can't sweep it away. He can't say, well, you have more good works than bad works. No, He can't. Sin must be dealt with. And that's what the blood sacrifices were to teach the Israelites daily, constantly. And because God could not brush sin away, He punished His Son in our behalf. So his justice could be satisfied. Look how the author describes it here. He says... <clears throat> Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. You know what redemption means? It means he... Paid in his own blood what was necessary. You know why he did that? So he could purchase us from slavery of sin. He paid with his own life blood what was necessary, so he could own us as his brothers, bring us to his father. So he gives us, first of all, an eternal relationship. Relationship, redemption through His blood. But He also brings us an eternal renewing. An eternal renewing. Look, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot, without taint, Without uh, sin, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In eternal renewing, a freshness here, once and for all sacrifice, that cleanses us. You know what you may discover as a believer? <clears throat> But because of the gospel, you cannot stay happy in sin. And you have to run back to the cross and claim this verse right here. And you have to repent of sin. And you know what else you may discover about the gospel the longer you are as a believer and the more you grow in the Lord? that you need not only to repent of sin, but also many times if you look into your heart, you need to repent of your good works, which which, which can be done with wrong motives. Motives of trying to please people, or trying to earn favor, or buy God's favor. But the good news about the Gospel is, we as sinners and enemies of God, could not glorify God. We could not. Romans 3 makes that very clear. We could not glorify God. But Christ, through His sacrifice, blots out our sins, gives us an eternal heap of Christ's perfect righteousness on our account, puts a new heart in us, puts His Spirit within us so that we now can do what we are created for. Glorify God. Jesus brings us an eternal renewing. And so now, with pure hearts, clean, pure vessels, we can now glorify God and serve Him purely as purchased, treasured possessions. Look at the end of verse 14 again. Purge your conscience from dead works. To what? To serve the living God. To not sit on our rears and do nothing for God. But to serve the living God. That's why God saves us. Because he's created us on the good works. To serve the living God. And the gospel does not just have an inward focus on our hearts. But it has an outward propulsion. It propels us to serve. If you're not a serving Christian, you've got to wonder if you really understand the gospel. He brings us eternal renewing. He gives us a mission here. This is what access to God does. So now I, can, I am a worshiper of God that I could not be before I embraced the gospel. And now I am a servant, an ambassador of this good news and this message. That I was not when I was an enemy. I like how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming is unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lively or living stones, are built up a spiritual house, and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense... "...even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar or unique people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in time past were not a people." But are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The gospel changes us. Because Jesus gives us access to God in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So what has happened in Jesus, returning kind of the opening illustration, is that the main road from one side of the city to the other city has been opened. All the detours, all the rerouting, construction, in a sense, has been completed in the work of Christ. There are some temporary roadways along the way because we're not in the final stage, are we yet? But you shouldn't mistake them for the real thing. And these readers, and you hearing the Word of God from Hebrews 9 this morning, need to know that we can travel by the main highway into the heart of the city because Jesus is that highway. He is the way. And if anybody tells you that you still have to use the old roads, that you still have to earn favor by the works of the law, that there are other ways to salvation, that there are other ways to worship God, and there are many paths and roads, The answer is, Jesus is the road. And Jesus, the great high priest, God has crushed the head of the serpent. He has defeated death. He has freed us from bondage to sin. Not the influence of sin, but bondage to sin. He has put things into order. He has established the new covenant through which... Because of the blood of Jesus, sins have been dealt with. Here's the wonderful truth. We've been brought to God through Jesus' own blood, to the very presence of God where He dwells in light and holiness. Do you understand that? Every day you are in the presence of God where He dwells in light and holiness because of Jesus. Hebrews 4, 14-16 tells us you have access to God because of Jesus. And that lighted holiness. So our question this morning is, do we live like that? Do we live like this? Do we live in a constant praise and a thankfulness for His undeserving grace and kindness to us? And out of that, do we live in real holiness? If his whole point of his work was to cleanse us, then wouldn't it be foolish to keep going back to the sins that he saved us from? Peter says it's like a dog returning to vomit. Do we live in real holiness? Do we put off the old man that we've been delivered from? Put on the new. Renew our mind in his word. How much time are we spending in absorbing things from the TV a day and the internet and everything else? How much time? How much time are we absorbed in recognizing we're a new creature in Christ and absorbing His Word Loving the things the Father loves. Hating the things that He hates. Keeping ourselves unspotted from the world's values. Clothed in true holiness. Because Christ is better. Christ is the reality who has brought us to a better, pro, a better place by being a better priest through His own better provision. Let's pray.